It's easier to do it and eat shit when you're 18 and 19 than when you're in your 40s. You might as well just try it. Today's guest is the lead singer of Young the Giant, Samir Gadia. After receiving interest from record labels, Samir dropped out of Stanford in his first year. His band's success turned him into an indie star, gracing the Lollapalooza main stage. Over 10 years later, Young the Giant just released their newest project titled American Bollywood. Join us as we discuss Samir's decision to drop out, why he chose themes of mythology and family for his new album, and getting in touch with his Indian heritage. Thanks so much for joining us, Samir. We wanted to kind of talk to you about the beginning of what was the Jakes and then Young the Giant. Correct me if I'm wrong, but just setting the scene a little bit. You're going through school, you're going through high school, dealing with just pressures in general of like trying to like be a good kid and like do well in school, but then also like just typical teenage things, right? Like having this interest, this passion, whatnot. Um, and then going off to college and then having the record label like sign you, et cetera, dropping out. What was that early period like for you in terms of emotionally, like what was going through your mind? Um, and what kind of led you to make those series of decisions, I guess? Yeah. Um, well, music was kind of all always in my life, but it was maybe something I was a, a bit denial about if, you know, it would be the th actual thing I do. You know, I think at that time and in just in general for a lot of kids, right. You know, it does seem like those, those dreams can be impossible. And there's so many people who in your life tell you to do a certain thing. Um, and it wasn't just that like music was the only thing I did. There were, I was passionate about a lot of other things, school, there were certain aspects of what I was doing that I really enjoyed. Um, but I was really into, my dad was a professional soccer player in India. And so from the time I could walk, I mean, I was playing soccer and that was kind of the big thing. Like I was always, I was going to play college ball. That was kind of what was going to happen. And then my freshman year of high school, I, uh, I got really injured. I broke my, my toe actually it was stupid. I broke my big toe. Um, but I like, I snapped it in half, um, <clears throat> like the bone. And so I couldn't, you know, run, I was doing cross country and I couldn't really play soccer. And so I'd picked up the guitar, you know, when I was 12 and I'd started kind of like writing music here and there, but it really only started to bloom as I had so much free time. I wasn't playing soccer as much. I wasn't doing all that. And so, you know, I just started taking it a little bit more seriously. And, um, I think I started, I went to one of my first shows at that point. I'd never really gone to go see like big touring artists because I just didn't really have the type of disposable income to just like go and watch shows. And that just wasn't a thing. So even though there were shows available, um, I grew up in Orange County. There was a really iconic venue there called the Verizon Wireless Amphitheater, which we ended up playing at later on in my career. But that's where all the big artists would come. And um, I just, I could never get tickets to any of those things. And so there was a big local music scene. And I think I went to one of my first ever concerts, like, you know, maybe the three weeks later, two weeks after that injury. And I was like, oh, wow, I guess all these this community of people who are making music for each other and really enjoying the space and had like their own kind of lingo. And I was like, I, I became obsessed with that. I really wanted to be a part of that. And so kind of quickly music became a thing that it's one of the few things in my life where it just came naturally to me. I think it, 
you know, if you talk to a lot of musicians, it's you, you're channeling something else that's not there. You know, obviously there's a physicality of singing. I was <clears throat> blessed with being able to have a singing voice, but all else that goes into songwriting and the process of being discerning what you like um, musically, you know, being a product of all your taste, it just kind of naturally came to me. And so it was a dream that I never really chased. It was a dream that I almost felt like was chasing me. It was like I was meant to do it. And, you know, I played my first my first band and we started like winning all these like battle of the bands contests. And I was, you know, the, the other guys in the band were starting to take this really seriously. And I was like, you know, well, this is still just a hobby of mine. I want to go to school. And I went to uh, end up getting into Stanford and I went there for you know, a year and a half. And during that time, I think is when I really started realizing, I think it was the summer between my freshman and sophomore year that we like really sat down, really went with like a real producer and like recorded an EP and that started to take off. And I don't think we were really trying to have it, have that happen. It was a very specific time. I think right now, because of just the, the level of content that's out there, it's like, you have to try to really like make sure people listen to it. Um, for better, or for worse. And I think back then it was just people, if there's something people gravitated towards, it was just, be, became known. And so that's sort of what happened to us. And we got this, you know, like this record store in Japan bought like a bunch of units of our EP. And then we had some label people sniffing around. And it was at that, that point that, you know, I was like, okay, well, I should probably take time off of school. And that was a big decision. Probably one of the biggest decisions I ever made in my life. And I'm, you know, very happy I did. It was a very difficult one, but um, I didn't make it like with, you know, no, with nothing to support it. There was already like something happening, you know, and, and then I left and just kind of things, things just happened, you know? Yeah. So clearly throughout this time period, you're managing a lot of identities. You had a soccer player, um, you were students, of course, getting to Stanford is a major achievement. And then leaving that major achievement and everyone's like, I mean, at least where we grew up, if you get to one of those Ivies or those big name brand schools, it's like you're celebrating your community. Everyone's like so proud of you. And then leaving what some people would consider their greatest accomplishment up to that age has got to be quite daunting. So walk us through, because a lot of young people that, mm -hmm. you know, um, college is this whole weird thing right now where it's super expensive. Um, do you go, don't you go? Do you go to a big name school? Do you go to a smaller school to save money? Like talk us through those convers that conversation to leave school. And of course, very different situation being a successful mm -hmm. musician at the time, but talking with your parents, the kind of internal turmoil you had to deal with um, and just kind of go through what that felt like for you personally. Yeah. Um, I think first and foremost, yeah. I mean, being, being the son that got into Stanford was, you know, a huge, huge thing for my family. And they thought that that was going to be, I think even now, People think, you know, when you get to a school like that, okay, well then you're good, right? Like life is just going to happen now. It's it's never been that, that way. And I think it's now more than ever, not that way. You know, that's just the beginning. You know, you get into a good school, great. Um, but it's what you do with it um, that matters. And I started to see that there were some kids who were just bound for greatness and they were going to be great even if they went to a community college or they didn't go to college at all. And then there were some who were so burnt out and so like filled with other people's expectations that they became so confused as to what they were doing. And I kind of found myself 
in that latter group where I like, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I was like, I kept on thinking, well, okay, well I got into this great school. So, you know, something will happen for me, you know, but I, I think at a certain point and instinctively I realized, well, you know, that's not really the case. Um, I have this thing that is going for me, that is working for me. And I would also regret it for the rest of my life if I if I just didn't try it. Like, honestly, at that time, I didn't think that it was going to be my career. You know, I just thought, okay, well, I have the chance to take some time off school and, and uh, you know, try, try and pursue this dream. Otherwise, I'll regret it. I think something that people don't realize, and a lot of people say this in interviews because it's snazzy to say, oh, I quit school. You know, technically, you don't have to quit school every school allows defer deferments, you know? So that's what I did. I didn't go into the office and say, fuck you guys, I'm leaving. I just said, hey, listen, I'm going to take a year off and play it by a month-to-month -month basis at that point and see. And so for me, there was no real loss in terms of like, okay, I'm not, it's not like they're going to not allow me to come back here. I think the biggest thing was like, okay, well, all these friends that I had met, all these um, experiences that I'd had, like I wouldn't be in touch with these people as much. And that was a sacrifice that I made. And I'm, you know, still very happy I made that, you know. Um, yeah, sometimes I wish I had, you know, stronger college buddies who, you know, we could share things over. But like, you know, I've made new friends. I've also have friends since the beginning. And, you know, I also have people in college who didn't really like me very much who, but then, you know, when we kind of made it, they kind of started coming back and being like, Hey, can we get some tickets? Whatever. So, you know, <laughs> the, those, those things that happen. Goes. Yeah. And I think, you know, I went to my family and I was just, that was kind of the biggest thing. Like we had a bunch of like, in, in a lot of interviews, it says like, you know, we had a whole presentation for our families, which we did. Like we, we straight up like, like this is the, these are the, this is the data that supports why we should do this. You know, things are actually happening here this is the, chan the chance that we have. And if we don't sign a record contract by this time, then we'll go back to school. That was kind of the deal. But beyond that, I think it was just an emotional thing. It was like, you know, I will regret this for the rest of my life if I don't do it. And I, I, I do think that at the end of the day is, you know, a lot of parents, they, they want what's best for their children. They don't necessarily always know how to communicate that. And they say, oh, I want you to like, just go to the best school. They want you to be happy. They want you to like fit. They want you to feel like you have a place and um, a place in society and a place to belong. And I, I think I only realized that a little bit later on in my life. And that that was the first moment I really challenged my parents. And I think they respected me as an adult at that point. That was the that was the moment. That like, okay, well, he's making his own decisions, and that's I think a really important thing. And there are a lot of kids who have seen you know, in their late twenties, in their early thirties, who still are pretending like they love this thing that even in their forties, man, I mean, that telling their parents that they love this thing that they're doing, but in reality, they just hate it. And it's just paying the bills, you know, and there's this dream that they, they want to pursue. All I'll say is it's much, e much easier to do it and eat shit when you're 18 and 19 than when you're in your forties. And so you might as well just try it. I think that's, it's funny because that I think sums up the past three years of <clears throat> Jack and our interviews almost is like, it's, I think a lot of people, especially that I've um, 
like especially just as like as I've gotten to college I think a lot of people I kind of surround myself with um or not even surround myself with just in in college in general um fit this kind of bill of like maybe a little burnt out don't know what they want to do um but also feeling like this is it um maybe that's because college is a destination it's viewed like that um maybe it's just because like it's just like mentally difficult to extrapolate your life in the next 10 years like it's difficult even in the next like one year um but I think that that message of what had that message of it's easier to like take a chance and eat shit when you're 18 instead of when you're 40 um is really important I'm kind of curious to hear from you did you ever especially maybe in that year when I'm sure you came across times where you were like like yeah we're gaining traction whatnot but this isn't meant for me maybe the comparisons in the music industry I mean you can compare yourself really anywhere but I feel like especially in entertainment in general it's really easy to be like this person has more streams this person sells more etc what did you do when you dealt with that especially when you were just starting out when you were younger etc I think like I said it's it's just all so much easier when you're younger because like you said you don't have that need or desire to think about a year from now, 10 years from now, every year that you get older, every decade you get older, I think about what my next 10 years is because I'm 33 and I have two kids and I have to think about that. That's like my job as a father to think about what the next 10 years are, you know? And, um, when I was 18, 19, my highest pursuits were just to like make a record with my friends and that was it. And when you have the ability to share the load with a friend or confidant, then um, the the noises that can affect you are less potent. And I think you almost learn from your young self in those moments. You know, we were very lucky in the beginning. Um, I mean, we had hard work, there was talent, but, you know, we came in at a really good time, but it wasn't all easy. You know, like the first year, and I don't think we realized this, because we were just so in it and so young. I mean, we were on the verge of being dropped, you know, before anything hit. Like we'd released a record. We put my body out as a single. And the the landscape of alternative radio was changing at that point, but no one quite knew it yet. It was just about to happen. So the way song, the amount of time it took for a song to break was getting longer. And um, people didn't realize that. And so we'd been pushing the single for like three months, <clears throat> four months. And at that point, you know, back then it was like, oh, wow, this is like done. And and it was great. There was our team and our label was, they believed in us enough to be like, no, let's just try this a little bit more. And it was that those fine, that final push. And then, you know, we essentially went from, you know, playing in a van and trailer, touring in a van and trailer, playing to like a hundred people to, you know, selling out theaters and playing at the VMAs in the span of that, those few months because of that extra push. Um, and things kind of went quickly from there, but as we, it's not just about how you make it. That's just the beginning. Right. So when, once you make it, it's like, how do you stay there? And also how do you not let that destroy you and, and like allow yourself to be a human being? I don't think anyone's fully figured out the perfect formula yet. (laughs) There's, you know, I know tons of people who have imploded their family lives and, um, vice versa in pursuit of something else. And instead of like the most rounded figure, and I'm, I'm trying my best to try and be good at everything, but it just, it gets harder as you get older to internalize some of these defeats because you, you feel like you're just getting older, 
you know, and um, I think what I actually do now as I'm, I'm not that old, but I'm, you know, I've been in this industry for over a decade is it just continue to try and to channel that person, that kid that I was when I first started this, you know, that if I can channel that creativity um, and drown out all the other voices, then that's, that's the pursuit. And that's where you get yourself into the next place. Well, it seems like you've lived multiple lives because I mean, when you, when you tour, when you're a musician, you're not just the person having a, a day-to-day life um, that is maybe the same as everybody um, to some degree. And now you kind of have children. And so you're trying to be that kid-like version of yourself or identifying with that person to keep the creativity flowing. Has that influenced um, how you plan and how you are raising your children, how you want to like kind of bring them into maybe not music, but just creative endeavors in general to push them to find their own, you know, whatever that thing is for them, that passion, like how is um, kind of being a father helped shape that for you? Yeah, totally. I mean, being a father is such an amazing experience, you know, for your children, but also for, for yourself, for your family is that you, you kind of get to see the things that happen in your childhood and you kind of replay them. And it's up for you to decide what things were good that you wanted to keep going forward and what things were bad. And some people, you know, some people, they didn't have any parental figures. And so the opposite for them is, is the best way, you know, and I think one of the hardest things to navigate is when you just have parents who were there, but you know, maybe they try to do the best that they could, but some of the times they just didn't do the exact thing that you needed. And each child is different. But I think for me, whether they want to become a musician or if they'll revolt and try and become an accountant or something, you know, it's like, I want them to be confident in themselves. I want them to be confident, like insanely confident, but also good to other people and not treat anyone like they're better than someone just because they're confident. And that is the biggest goal. And I, you know, I think children innately have confidence and then it gets crushed as they get older and older by certain things. And I can't prevent life um, from happening, but what I can do is at, at home, I can, instill their confidence and make them feel like their choices are valid. And, um, you know, that's, that's what I'm gonna do. And it's, it's also the, the lesson that I want to kind of do, you know, like my parents tried, but it's like, you know, immigrants in a new country, like kind of keep your head down and, and, and do the work so you can like have a seat at the table. That was kind of the thing. And I'm like, well, I actually have skipped two steps. You know, I'm at the, I've had a seat at the table, but now I need to be confident enough in myself to like say what I want to say. And that's just like the, you know, the constant goal for me. Hey, sorry to interrupt. If you listened this far, I truly appreciate it. If you could do me a favor, please share the podcast however you found it, whether it was on social media, through a friend, or even myself. It would mean the world to us if you've been enjoying the episode. Take a few seconds just to share it. Enjoy the rest of the show. I think as you get older too, and I think especially as like a child of immigrants myself, I think um, I've, Jack, I've never really talked to you about this, but I feel like I saw a lot of my peers growing up who would kind of have this vision of like their parents being uh, immortal or like, oh, like my dad can kind of like do anything or like my parents are always like this. And I, a lot of my friends that were like children of immigrants, myself included, like you never really feel that almost because like kind of what you're talking about, like building confidence, like in a sense, like when you grow up 
and live in the country that you've already grown up in, you were able to build that confidence over time. But almost like as a child of immigrants, you're watching them try to rebuild their confidence. Like my mom like restarted her career at like 33 after being like a housewife slash like mother. Um, And so like I'm like 10 or 12 watching her kind of under the pressure that like a 20 year old might be at um, at work while also being like a mother. Right. And so like you view these things and it almost makes you a little more human and it makes you a little more susceptible to that, I guess, strength in confidence, but also like lack of strength at the same time. Yeah. No, totally. I think feeling like you belong and you deserve to be in a place is like the is the very basis of confidence that you deserve to be there, that you deserve to have a seat at the table. And, you know, when you come at something as a guinea pig into a new place and you're just trying to figure it out and some of your peers may be like their parents went to the same high school they did and they like can give them little tricks and tips about things like you don't you don't quite have that and you you know, so it's just like a, a work in progress. But, you know, I, I think, I don't think it's impossible. I think it's, it's just a continuous growth. You know, I'm, I'm working even like, even now, you know, having achieved all the things I've achieved, I'm, I'm still working on my confidence. You know, I'm still trying to be, there are kids, there, there are people out there who have not done really that much in the music world, but are just so confident. And I'm like, you know, that that's an important thing. I, I want to be confident without making it feel like comes from a place of insecurity, but it just comes from a place of like, I want, I deserve to be here. You know, I, there's no question about it. That's, yeah. you know? Yeah. Like confident without being arrogant almost. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, I wanted, speaking of just that story of trying to better yourself, move on. I wanted to talk to you about um, American Bollywood. Um, mm -hmm. Can you kind of like, I mean, Jack and I have done our deep dive and et cetera, but can you kind of walk our listeners through um what was the genesis of the idea this is is this your first uh record off like a label right yeah. like without a label uh-huh mm -hmm. so kind of like walk us through that where the genesis of that idea was the rollout etc yeah yeah so i mean it was probably 2019 we just figured finished a big run and we had a number one single with superposition we're like okay let's just keep this going let's let's just write let's get back in the studio and we started getting back in the studio and before even the pandemic hit, we had like a lot of a record, you know, we were, we were moving really fast without really thinking about what we were doing. And then, and you know, the breaks were hit, you know, obviously around the world. And, um, I think that moment allowed me to pause. Also, it was the time where I found out that my wife was pregnant with my first son and it became that moment of like, okay, well, what do I want to pass on? What's the story I want to tell to my children? And what do I want to say? You know, this is our fifth record. Um, it was also at that time that we became aware of the fact that, you know, if the world shuts down and we can't play shows and we don't make any money, you know, I was on unemployment. I was trying to figure it out. And we realized like, listen, we need to, we need to have more ownership of our music. Uh, otherwise, you know, this is just not sustainable for us in the long run. Like I can't just be breaking my back on tour you know, for the next 20 years in order to make money. I'd seen that happen too many times, people missing birthdays, missing big events in their kids' lives, being absent. And I was like, this is not what I want to do. So we need to break off and do our own thing. Um, and I think through the process of all of that, like what lives on versus what needs to die versus the the moment of 
exile that all of us kind of had in our lives led me to this mythology that, you know, I'd been told as a child from my grandfather and I'd read in comic books when I was a kid um, of the Mahabharata, which is a four act mythology about five brothers who are princes to a throne and are exiled from the kingdom by their cousins, the quote unquote evil cousins and are forced to essentially come of age in exile and, you know, refuse all the privileges that they had before and go live life and fight either, you know, physical or emotional demons and come back to reclaim their right to the throne. Um, and that was in so many ways how I felt us as a band were functioning and trying to get off of our record label, reclaim the rights to our music and our sound, uh, the world as, uh, in, as a whole and trying to make pieces, you know, put together back the pieces after the pandemic. And also really like how stories are told and how they move along is through generations and um, how the story of the immigrant is told. It can't be told in one lifetime. It has to be told over the course of many generations. And so if you zoom back to anyone's families, we all came from somewhere and that exodus, there's, there's stories of betrayal and love and despair. And that became really exciting to me. And so I wanted to tell this mythology through the lens of like, the multi-generational saga of the immigrant in America and the trial, the travels and the history and everything that got us to this point. Um, and it became kind of something where I just saw it in everything and the signs and everything. And, um, you know, once I had the song American Bollywood, which I'd written, I, br I brought it to the guys and I was like, listen, I have to tell the story and I would love for you guys to help me tell it. But if you can't, I understand. I just need to go do this then on my own. And they, they come, you know, they were like, you know, we, we think this is a really important thing to, to say. We would love to be a part of it and help you. And they really dove in. They really got really deep into it with me. And we did a lot of research, um, not only in the mythology, but just sonically, we wanted it to feel like, you know, this paradox of East and West. And um, it was just a, a beautiful project. We started from scratch and it took a long time to make, you know, like the, Album four was out 2018 and, and we released uh, American Bollywood in 2022. So, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a journey, but it's um, something very, very close to us and, and to me in particular. Yeah. The, the multi-generational stories definitely seem through even in a first list and hearing that. But what I was really curious about is the fact that it's hard enough to tell a story to, you know, write a narrative or to even, you know, write a poem and kind of express a story in one kind of piece of work. But the fact that you're able to tie all this together within music and within an entire project where each song can live by itself as an enjoyable piece of artwork um, and music, but then also when you listen to it all the way through, it's this seamless thing. How do you go about even beginning to structure that and beginning to plan it? Because it's definitely like a masterful thing you're able to do. And when it works, it, seem, it seems effortless. But I know the work behind it is probably mm -hmm. difficult, complicated, all that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. I mean, it's, you know what we are, we are a real band, you know, like that we're, there are five people. And so it's almost easier to tell a more complicated story that has pieces to it. That is something that we can all understand um, than to just kind of like start trying to write songs in the dark, because if you do that, then everyone's influences are coming in differently anyway. And then you just kind of end up writing vague stuff. And, um, 
so for most of our records, we've tried to come at to a theme, but this was the most crystallized one because we were, I really wanted everyone to like be able to like live in this world and contribute to it. And so when you have a story, like a mythology that's already been told, then you can get inspired by the storylines that are already there. And then you start just putting in the pieces. There were, there were some songs that already had natural places to be. And then as we just kept on diving further in, it was like, oh, well, this is a great idea. This is a great storyline. Let's let's kind of try and figure out how we can write a song around that. And um, it became like a really enjoyable process. You know, I think in some ways it, it seems like it could be a lot more difficult, but I almost feel like it is more difficult to just try and write blindly a body of work and then just try and find a theme that fits it is also what people kind of do. And sometimes it falls flat. So, you know, this time we just... We just wanted to go for it. That's awesome. I wanted to hear about your uh the influence that I know you've talked about it a little bit, but the influence that uh partition had on that record. Cause um so funny enough, I kind of came across your like American Bollywood kind of rollout started right at like a period of time when I was really like just engrossed slash like thinking a lot about like this kind of like multi-generational story, possibly multi-generational trauma, et cetera, that comes from like partition, mm -hmm. that comes from like all of these deep, um, deep kind of ties and specifically like the South Asian immigrant community, yeah. um, like just learning about how like, oh, a lot of these tendencies of like kids our age to be like workaholics, maybe alcoholics, et cetera, come from like a line of just like trauma, frankly. And totally. Um, I actually came across a TikTok of you talking about that um, mm -hmm. just around that time, which is like, I don't know how the algorithm works like that. But, <laughs> um, and I'm curious to hear your story and your perspective on that within your family, then also within like the American Bollywood record where that plays a role. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, for those of you who are listening, might not know what partition is, it was, you know, when... India finally got their depend, uh, independence from the empire and then this large body that had become India to a certain extent that was forced to become a country because of colonialism then was broken up into different pieces. And so there became, you know, the, the Pakistan and Bangladesh um, and India were once one whole thing and then became like picked apart and put separately. And this this place that was like an interfaith place that harbored so many different beliefs and religions relatively harmoniously till that point where it immediately like pitted against one another at that point. And there was a huge exodus of families that um, were living maybe on the India border side, but then were Muslim. So had to go to, you know, Bangladesh or to Pakistan and vice versa. Um, with my grandmother, you know, she was living in Dhaka, which is, you know, modern day Bangladesh. Um, and she was, you know, Hindu family. And so, they were told, you know, pretty immediately that they had to leave. And her father was a, a doctor and was a well-known doctor in the community. And um, they essentially like, you know, had to start from scratch. And they they had this huge travel, this exodus and this exile into a new place that they were then forced to call their play, their home. And it's been the story of, you know, the Bengali people in India for a long time, but the Indian um you know, the diaspora in general of South Asia is just longing for home. And um, I think, you know, obviously there are a lot of blank blanket statements, but 
I don't want to overgeneralize, but with my grandmother, I think what had happened was the exile was so profound that her family, her parents were trying to process it in real time. And they, they weren't there for her. I don't think as much as, you know, she wanted them to be. And I think generations kind of ping pong and, and change, um, uh, you know, so I think, you know, my mother's generation were raised in this feeling of loss that they, in some ways they were like foreigners and even their own land. Um, and so that trauma was instilled into them that is then instilled into us as they moved here for greener pastures, they were exiled of their own volition and moved over here. Um, and I think there's a lot of like immigrant parents who, you know, are our generation's parents. I mean, you guys are more Gen Z, I guess, but you, you know, kind of like say the previous generation who came here, zero gen, let's say, or whatever, um, and are coming here to, to find a place, like they wanted to do it on their own terms. And I think there was this necessity to be like, okay, well, we, we saw how this happened maybe with the previous generation. We want to do it on our own terms. We want to come here and we want to be, we want to fit in. We want to find places in society to become successful. And we want to, we want to come in and do it fast. And um, I think a lot of the, the other stuff, you know, there's so many different things culturally about being Indian that are so different depending on where you are from, but that kind of unified like work ethic is something that is there and strong in, in all, all, all immigrants, really. It's just like they're, they're, they're traveling their traumas and they're hoping that coming to this new place will be the solution for all of them. When in reality, they're just, a, it's a magnifying glass for all of these issues. And so, you know, that the intergenerational trauma of my grandmother all the way to down to myself, I still feel that right now, you know, and, and this, the stories and, um, you know, it's, it's something that feels like is a part of my life, you know? Yeah, a hundred percent. I think it's definitely like what, what you're speaking about and in the context of even American Bollywood, you see it. I mean, even the fact that you released it right in four parts. And I think it is very much so something that not like, it's not just a South Asian uh, story. Mm -hmm. Although even though it came like from your context of being South Asian, that's the experience you drew from. Um, but I think it's, I think it just really speaks to like the, the idea that like for me personally, uh, Jack and I've kind of talked about this a lot. Um, but I distinctly remember something that Jackie told me like about a year ago now, or it was like maybe 10 months ago or eight months ago, um, we were getting dinner and he was talking about how like, yeah, Namish, like you have this analytical side to yourself, et cetera. But what really drives you um, is art forms, whether like whatever that case may be. Um, and I have really thought about that for a really long time. Um, and I finally realized it's because like, I think it's just all something that all people associate with, regardless of if they can play a guitar or play a piano or draw or paint or anything. Um, it's just because for one of the first times you're able to feel something without necessarily thinking about it. Um, in any way, shape, or form. And I think, especially for maybe a lot of kids growing up in the area that Jack and I grew up in, a more competitive area, et cetera, um, we're taught to really logically think through most of our decisions, most of the things that like we do in our day-to-day. Um, and I think just specifically, like American Bollywood being a kind of 
therapeutic ride through um this past these past experiences these past lives um is a, like a testament to that idea yeah no thank you for that i mean i think eastern philosophy you know asian philosophy and you know the tenets of our cultural heritage are lost in a new world where we're we're trying to find um we're trying to be analytical and trying to to harness this level of you were in this fight or flight evolutionary as human beings, like trying to understand what our place is. And it's kind of a reclamation of that spirituality, a reclamation of that feeling of like letting your heart guide you and letting, and realizing that your mind can also be a hindrance and that, um, you know, it's something, you know, for me, I, I battle with, you know, being very type a in some ways, but also, um, having, this deep intuition with um, my creative, you know, vision and wanting to see that through. And sometimes thinking too much can be the end of it. And so, you know, trying to take decisions and follow how I'm feeling about things is something as us as a culture in America, we're not really super okay with, but I think at the end of the day, it's what, you know, makes me happy. And I'm, going to continue to try and follow those decisions. And I'm privileged enough to be in a job where those types of decisions are rewarded as well. You know, a hundred percent. Um, so just wrapping up, there's two questions that we ask every guest that comes on the podcast. Um, so the first one is what are like two to three pieces of content? This can be like books, movies, music, et cetera, um, that have really changed your perspective. I'd say actually it's funny I had Abi the Nomad on my podcast thing I had him as a feature for Alt Nation um, and we talked a lot about the importance of Freddie Mercury and how he represented, um, he was representation for a generation that may have overlooked him because he kept it kind of a secret, you know, that he was Parsi Indian. Um, but I remember, you know, most Indian kids who especially are creatively inclined probably remember the moment they found out that Freddie Mercury was Indian because it's, it's such a, like an iconic thing. He's, he's a, in the rock and roll hall of fame, like legendary type of singer and musician. And the fact that this was done generations ago, um, I think is just allowed me to believe that this was a path that was possible for me. Um, and I think, you know, I was always a big fiction guy. Like I love books and, um, I love all the writers, but it always was, you know, mostly from a European lens. And I think, the first time that I read uh, Salman Rushdie and his first book, Midnight's Children, I was like, oh man, like this is such a unique um, look and take into this story and this heritage that um, I didn't, I haven't read about, you know, I haven't really read about versions of my family, versions of myself in books before. And now it's so much more accessible and he's paved the path 
for a lot of South Asian writers and obviously they're um, people that predate him, but in just in general, like being able to step outside of the view of like what you've been taught in school, you know, who these, and I think things are a little different now when you guys were in high school, you pro your reading list was probably slightly more diverse. You know, our reading list was, you know, it was pretty, you know, old man in the sea and, you know, like pretty, you know, through one perspective and one lens. And he kind of like shattered that for me. So um, it's a great book for those who don't, haven't read it. It's just, it's like the hundred children who were born at the stroke of midnight of India's independence. And there's this like weird kind of magical realism thing that they can all kind of connect with one another and have like sort of superpowers. Um, but it's, it's a great book. Awesome. Samir, the last question we have you today is if you could go back and give one piece of advice to your teenage self, and I'm talking you're at Stanford, you're trying to make that big decision, kind of what would you go back and give advice to you if you could do that right now? Um, stick to, you know, how you're feeling right now and channel that feeling and be confident in that feeling and um, know that everyone else has their own process and you have yours and to own that process uh, because success looks different on different people. Um, yeah. Awesome. Samir, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. We really appreciate you making time in your busy schedule. Um, it's been a long time coming, trying to schedule this, but we appreciate um, you continuing to try to make time for us um, to have this conversation. So again, we just appreciate um, you coming on today. Oh, thanks for having me guys. Jack, All right. And everyone stream American Bollywood and kind of look forward to your tour coming in 2023. All right. I will see you guys there. All right. That's <laughs> it for today's episode of the Project Alchemy podcast. As always, guys, peace.